So here's for the existential moment. My presider's script says, introduce the speaker. My name is Hugh Taft Morales, <laughs> and as I said, I joined the Washington Ethical Society about 20 years ago, and about 10 years ago made the decision to leave my teaching profession and go into ethical culture leader training, and uh, have spent the last five years at Philadelphia and uh, at Baltimore, actually four at Philadelphia and five in Baltimore, being an ethical culture leader. But it's this place that set me on that road, so I'm always deep, deeply grateful I'll now apologize for those of you who like sim... Well, I wouldn't say this is complex, but I just, I'm just i going to throw a lot out today. Don't worry about what you don't get. I'm really more interested in what, what sticks for you. Um, I'm going to start by asking what goes on in your head when somebody comes up to you and says they're spiritual but not religious. How do you react to that? I mean, do you like it or do you find the term spiritual to woo-woo. It's a term that Sam Harris says, quote, seems to annoy believers and atheists equally. (laughs) To some skeptics and rationalists, spirituality conjures up images of superstition and tarot cards and crystals. It's imprecise, it's unsubstantiated. Some feel it's simply the product of fuzzy, wishful thinking. The founder of ethical culture, Felix Adler, used the term spiritual a lot. It was important to him. But he didn't like how many people used it. He didn't like how many people used it to represent claims unsupported by critical reason and solid evidence. Adler said, quote, In the region of mental activity which is called the spiritual life, vagueness is apt to prevail. The outlines of thought are apt to be blurred, The feelings aroused are apt to be indistinct and transitory. The word spiritual becomes a synonym for muddy thought and misty emotionalism. That's our founder. (laughs) So he used the term a lot, but he was wary about those characteristics. Today, some think that muddy thought and misty emotionalism spring from weakness, right? That it's a need for easy answers or false security or magical thinking. And others believe that what passes for spirituality today is nothing more than New Age hedonism, sort of a self-centered quest to have peak experiences or feeling at one with the universe. I don't have anything against peak experiences per se, but it does seem shallow to say that those are the end of life, that that's the highest aim. I've had enough experience with people so wrapped up at becoming at one with the universe that they forget those standing right in front of them. So I understand why Sigmund Freud criticized the desire for such oceanic feelings as little more than a reflection of limitless narcissism. I mean, if you're one with the universe, it's all about me. New York Times commentator David Brooks criticizes contemporary secular quests for spirituality as one of those, quote, Self-improving vacations. Brooks believes that if we all approach spirituality that way, we'd be a collection of autonomous individuals seeking a string of vaguely uplifting experiences that might perhaps leave a sediment of some sort of spiritual improvement. That's not a ringing endorsement. 
Some theists see what is called humanist spirituality as superficial and lacking the rigor necessary for more de- uh, within more demanding faiths. There's one book that I saw called When Spiritual But Religious Is Not Enough. And in it, a congregational minister poked fun at the complacency and hedonism of seekers who just want to experience peace through a nice little walk in the woods or chanting or candles. It's a little snarky article. The author thinks that this is spirituality light and it's fine for those privileged people who are comfortable, but for people who face harder times, they need more than advice about peak experiences. They need a tougher spirituality that engages them in the hard work of making the world better. Add to that critique another one that spirituality is in fact often profit-driven. We've seen it. It's often about cash, whether it buys gilded cathedrals or corporate jets for televangelists. New Age spirituality can often see more about money than morality as well. Richard King, in a book called Selling Spirituality, points out that what passes for spirituality without religion today is not really much different from the outdated religions because much of spirituality today is, quote, itself part of that commercialized and materialistic culture. Spirituality sold to people as an instant fix for their problems, usually with nothing but anecdotal evidence and weak logical thinking to defend its effectiveness. I have sympathy with all those critiques, so why do I defend humanists who still want to use the term spiritual? And this is why. Because for many humanists, humanists who remain as true as I am to skepticism and naturalism and science, the term spirituality still represents for them a quest for deep meaning. Deep meaning. And it comes in many, many different ways. I'm a humanist that embraces pluralism and diversity. And I celebrate the fact that many people derive inspiration from different words and different experiences. And I don't want to deny anybody in ethical culture the right to use a word that's so useful in their lives, as long as it doesn't violate the naturalism that I think is a part of humanism. So today I'm going to defend allowing a naturalistic, humanistic spirituality, the use of those words. Of course, not everybody here wants them or needs them. I fully accept that. Adler said it this way. He said, The first essential is an awakening, a sense of the absence of spirituality, the realized need of giving to our lives a new and higher quality. First, there must be the hunger before there can be the satisfaction. That's a neat quote. Some of us are hungry and some of us aren't. That's fine. And that's what ethical culture is about. I'm hungry for deep meaning. I don't want the feel-good, superficial spirituality that ignores reason or retreats into self-centeredness. I embrace spirituality as a term that's inspiring to me, that engages me with the world, and is not contrary to reason. Benjamin Bieber, who's the humanist chaplain over at American University, says it this way. He rejects supernaturalism. He says, I see in naturalistic approaches to spirituality... Discourses of inspiration, exploration, elevation, connectedness, expansiveness, fulfillment, self-actualization of the human potential, love beyond simple drives, enlightenment, progress, and the horizons of the imagination. He continues, surely we can and must accept some amount of muddling towards clarification 
as we engage in such significant matters. So my approach to spirituality will always be a work in progress. It's something that I've inherited from pragmatist philosophers from William James and John Dewey. But in my 58 years of muddling towards clarification about this, I've come to a pretty good accommodation with the term spiritual. I embrace spirituality in terms of my humanism because it has three characteristics, science, imagination, and ethics. And those are the three parts of my talk today. Science, imagination, and ethics. I want to briefly talk about them before going into them each in depth. So first, my spirituality harmonizes with a great scientific endeavor. I believe in careful observation and reason and passionate curiosity about the in, that's inherent in science, and it's deeply rewarding. And science calls on us to explore the world around us with wonder and with awe, which drives us to want even more, to hypothesize and test over and over again. And beholding this universe, confronting our own limited size and time and knowledge, we're humbled by that. We can't know everything. Mystery will always remain. But in what we can know, through science, we can find what pragmatist Dewey calls the spirituality of the actual. I love that. The spirituality of the actual. Second, my spirituality involves us to transcend the outside world as it is towards the world as it might become through our imagination. Simple imagination. Imagination generates beautiful words and music and art, and it's a creativity that transcends what came before. And in our moral lives, I think imagination creates ideals that are like stars in the sky that guide us on our path. In the world and in ourselves, imagination helps bring out our best, and Dewey calls this the spiritual of the possible. The spiritual of the possible. And the third characteristic for me, probably the most important, is ethics. In ethical culture, certainly, spirituality must be about deed before creed. Adler used the term spiritual as a synonym for ethical quite often, interestingly enough. And neither he nor I desire a spirituality of the ascetic hermit that goes and hides off by themselves. We both embrace a spirituality that is ethical, that's engaged, that has concrete forms, that nurture our relations with each other. So the spirituality I'm going to put on the table today is one that arises out of our humanist tradition. It has the steady legs of science, the wings of imagination, and outstretched helping hands. Those are the three points I want to make. So let me go into those in a little bit more depth. Yeah. Got it? All right. So, science. You can begin with Baruch Spinoza, you can begin in a lot of places, but this 17th century Dutch philosopher equated God with nature to a degree. Some people called Spinoza's God so impersonal and non-supernatural that it was really no God at all. And it's very easy to slip from Spinoza's pantheism into a naturalism that's very consistent with modern science. I mean, none other than Albert Einstein said that he believed Quote, in Spinoza's God, who reveals himself in the orderly harmony of what exists, not in a God who concerns himself with the fates and the actions of human beings. Einstein wasn't consistent on how he talked about God. Sometimes he sounds like an atheist. Other times he talks about something like universal intelligence 
That for me is too ill-defined and vague to be comfortable with. But what I take from Einstein's approach is simply the awe and wonder that can animate and inspire people who follow science. Carl Sagan knows this as well as anybody in his books. He still resonates with us. He was one of the most brilliant, accessible scientists. And he wrote of being uh, uh, sort of in awe of the stars. I remember sitting and watching them as a kid. It evokes a lot of that sense of just amazement at what's around us, at the actual. He says, quote, When we recognize our place in the immensity of light years, in the passage of ages, when we grasp the intricacy, beauty, and subtlety of life, then that soaring feeling, that sense of elation and humility combined is surely spiritual. So those skeptical about spirituality, I think, can be reassured by Sagan's commitment to painstaking, rational, scientific analysis. He promotes humanism by embracing science and by denying supernaturalism. You don't need superstition to experience supernaturally that way. I mean, some people think it's weird Uh, that non-theists and scientists can't experience awe and mystery. I think that's weird. (laughs) By balancing skepticism and openness, I think we can avoid the extremes of nihilism and blind faith. Wonder and awe are all around us, right outside the window. So Sagan's pragmatic perspective pervades his recently rediscovered Gifford lectures of 1985. Interestingly enough, these just were republished. They're entitled, The Varieties of Scientific Experience, A Personal View of the Search for God. And they offer what his wife described as a playoff of William James's Gifford Lectures, a hundred years earlier, called The Varieties of Religious Experience. Now, like James, Sagan believed that life was more of a journey than a destination. They were separated by a hundred years, but the, they both embraced clear-sighted observation and openness to experience. And in Andrewian's words, Sagan's wife, what mattered the most was the error-correcting mechanism and the methodology of science. And she said her husband found spirituality and science as, quote, a kind of informed worship. So she urges us to get over the extreme skepticism that keeps us from examining spirituality through a naturalistic lens. She says that scientists have been very squeamish about this. This is Andrewian's words about really going into it at any depth, until recently. Scientists have been loath to really talk about the oneness and that soaring feeling that science can give us. It's been part of their truce, their truce with religion. You know, you don't burn us at the stake anymore and we won't try to attract your clients away from the way that you look at creation. <laughs> I don't buy that truce anymore. Spirituality is open to science. The impulse to feel connected and inspired to the natural world is a part of human culture. Not everybody shares that strongly, and many certainly don't call it spiritual, but it's worth studying. I mean, we should study the vast history of religion and the spiritual urge, because if not, we're going to be stuck in old patterns of talking path believers. George Santayana, the Harvard philosopher of a century ago, understood that we shouldn't confuse old-fashioned religious piety which is really about clinging to the past, about being fearful and submissive, he says, don't confuse that with true spirituality. He saw true spirituality as one about risk-taking and innovation, which is at the heart of humanism and science. So it doesn't have to be something that we stay away from. 
Anybody who's slogged through A Common Faith, which is a very short but important book by John Dewey, it's complex, he says that we have to do better at accessing the spiritual, the spirituality of the actual. He says, by exploring spirituality, we leave behind the baggage of supernaturalism, authority, and dogma. And he says that this might allow humanists to experience a modern spirituality that is, quote, be better, deeper, and enduring. Robert Solomon, who wrote Spirituality for the Skeptic, The Thoughtful Love of Life, talks about the fact that science no longer sort of throws emotion out the window. We study emotion now. It is a part of human life. And with that, we can study spirituality more because science used to think of emotion as not something worthy of studying. But Solomon says the spiritual life is a passionate life and neither spirituality nor passion is as such irrational. So even in the staunchly rationalist, atheistic communities, there's a change of mood about this. Richard Dawkins recently, is uh, always true to his, his emphasis on science, has recently been talking more about, quote, the magic of reality. And he doesn't mean supernaturalism, but how science can produce intense spiritual ele- elevation. I just saw Sam Harris speak up in Philadelphia, and he's opening the door wide with his book, Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. And in it, he says, a rational approach to spirituality seems to be what is missing from secularism secularism, and from the lives of most people I meet. Now, as a scientist, Harris is keenly aware about the crossroads between brain science and Buddhism. There's a lot of study there. He sees spirituality in letting go of the psychological habits and assumptions that increase our suffering. So these include attachment and the assumption of a permanent self or soul. Remaining free from superstition, Harris thinks that humanists can use rationality to liberate us and transcend the self, as he calls it, to live more fulfilling lives. He speaks about how religions helped human beings deal with one of the darkest spots of our existence, of the spirituality of the actual, and that's our own mortality. I mean, humanism has to deal with this too. Scientists agree that we all are going to die, and theistic religions turn to these unsubstantiated claims of karmic rebirth or heaven. I talk all the time about how I try to process the reality of my mortality, and that's another talk. But for now, I'm only going to say that humanists and ethical culturists need to be able to learn about, practice, and communicate to the world our collection of meaningful ways to process mortality. And that's an access for spirituality. These psychological patterns that I've been talking about, whether it's connecting to the universe or wanting to participate in mystery or imagining ourselves after we die, imagining the world after we die, (laughs) not imagining ourselves after we die, these are important parts of our experience. They're part of our actual life. It's part of the spirituality of the actual. And if we focus on that, I think we can experience the awe that Kant said Immanuel Kant said he found in the starry skies above and the moral law within. So there are many ways humanists can access what I'm going to call the spirituality of the actual. Let me turn to the second part of spirituality. Spirituality that I call the spirituality of the possible. As I said, I see that coming through imagination, human imagination. Most of you know Einstein's phrase, imagination is more important than knowledge. Right? Seen it on bumper stickers? No? 
Very popular years ago, I know that. Imagination is more important than knowledge. It's a cute phrase, there's some truth to it, but it's pretty clear that you can't have one without the other, right? You can't imagine possible futures without knowing the actual present. But the phrase does inspire us to look forward beyond the stark reality to live a more productive and creative life. So, for example, I can imagine life after I'm gone, a life that's filled with joy. I imagine my family and friends and ethical societies continuing to flourish, laughing, loving, hopefully making the world a little better. And when I do that, my own finitude bothers me less. And I imagine that my modest contributions to their lives live on in their deeds. And that helps. That helps. So imagination, I think, can help dispel the dark clouds that we have in our lives. When you look at climate change and the idea that we're actually going to end life for creatures like us on this planet, it's terrifying. But I can imagine a human race that figures this out and figures out how to live more sustainably. Imagination provides that for me. And even if we take human beings out of the picture, I can imagine a world where planets still fly through space and new stars will be born and the dance of matter will continue and in some very rare occasions the matter will come together in ways that allows us to have creatures capable of consciousness. I can imagine that. And that's important to me. So the imagination in the spirituality of the possible allows us to reach towards many things. Concepts like infinity or the totality of existence that we call the universe. Only the imagination can allow us to play with these concepts. There's no way you can observe, empirically grasp, the entire universe. Only our observations scratch the surface. Dewey says, the universe cannot be reached through observation or reflection, but only through imaginative extension. That's not supernaturalism. You can feel a oneness with reality through the imagination. Even the, the integrated whole self, when we talk about the self, I believe it's a construction, sure. C.G. Jung says that the ultimate goal for all healthy human beings is to feel a unified self. And he says it can only be imagined. It can only be imagined. Now, Zen masters and Sam Harris would say, of course it can only be imagined because it doesn't exist. That's fine. Dewey doesn't care whether it exists or not. He's a pragmatist. He says many people want to feel like their self is unified. He says the whole self is an ideal. It's an imaginative projection. And the harmonizing of the self and the universe operates only through the imagination. End quote. Imagination is captured in art and music and symbols. And ethics begins with an awareness that we're part of the world and we can change the world. Ethic begins with a choice to make change. And as a leader in our alternative to traditional religions that we call ethical culture, I embrace fully our communal effort to change the world by living lives that are more ethical. And any spirituality I seek is connected to the relationship with others. There are approaches to spirituality that try to minimize human relationships, right? or at least place them in a category that's less important to individual enlightenment and detachment. Some traditions preach that rising above suffering through stoic contemplation is the most important thing. It's useful at times, but again, I don't see it as the ultimate goal. So I'm less attracted about 
towards uh, Hinayana Buddhism, which is the more retreative focus on monks meditating, than I am attracted to Mahayana Buddhism of Thich Nhat Hanh. So I don't want to be a hermit in a cage, but I'd be honored to walk next to bodhisattvas like Dorothy Day or Martin Luther King who give their lives to other people. One of the characteristics that Dewey turns to most consistently to describe humanist spirituality is, quote, the emotional stir of possibilities yet realized. What pragmatists tend to think is important is that which helps us grow from what is to what could be. No magic, no alchemy. To build a better world, we're going to need dialogue, false starts, and persistence. But there are countless of historical examples of groups of people who saw a better world and then changed it. Abolitionists, progressives, suffragettes, social workers, Black Lives Matter. Hopefully we're going to change the world because we have an imagination that takes us there. And it's all related to ethics, which is going to be the last part of my talk today. So I've talked about the spirituality of the actual, the spirituality of the possible, science and imagination. This last one I want to talk about is spirituality of action, and that's found in ethics. What is it about people who devote themselves to others so selflessly and are engaged in the welfare of others? I think it's that they are more viscerally aware than I am of the interconnection of all humans, of all life, and of all reality. So perhaps imagination is necessary as a form of spirituality that Felix Adler called, quote, consciousness of infinite interconnection. It's quite a mouthful. Adler gained an appreciation for this interconnection from one of his heroes, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Now, he's considered by many people to be the, the, the really founder of sort of a uniquely American brand of spirituality because his worldview affirmed both self-affirmation and interconnection. E pluribus unum, not surprisingly. But Adler didn't think that Emerson adequately emphasized acting in the world to help others. In a way, Emerson, in Emerson, the other person is sort of lost in the rapturous unity of the self with the universe. The, the interconnection that was praised by, by Emerson was so intoxicating that in trying to grasp the whole universe, one could miss the person you're with. So Adler concluded that Emerson emphasized, quote, self-affirmation at the expense of service. And he drifted from Emerson in the later parts of his life, philosophically. Adler continues, he said, I came to see that Emerson's pantheism, in effect, spoils his ethics. That's interesting. His pantheism spoils his ethics. Emerson did not, in Adler's opinion, pay close enough attention to real people and real problems. Bob Solomon, in that book I mentioned, Spirituality for the Skeptic, and if any of you want to know any of these books, please email me. I'll give you my email afterwards, and I can send you the bibliography. He says, if spirituality involves the enlargement of the self, there lies a danger of overshooting other people in the embrace of the universe. What seems like oneness with all can in fact become detachment from everyone. Spirituality should evolve, I think, transforming our narrow, impoverished individuality into a consciousness of our many relationships with the world. And it requires us to have, in Solomon's world, words, 
passionate engagement in the details and the people in our lives. So my humanist spirituality doesn't demand detachment, but opening up. I mean, that's how I view philosophy, not some sort of swaggering intellectualism that has all of the answers. But a humble welcoming of ideas and the feelings of others. Solomon talks about this as naturalized spirituality, and he says it's simply the thoughtful love of life. He continues, philosophy becomes spirituality when it learns how to listen. In many ways, listening is the first step in ethics. Rather than rushing into all corners of the world to provide solutions to problems as we see them, ethical culture appreciates that without compassionate, evolving relationships, solutions are going to be elusive. That's why your, your Global Connections group is involved in community capacity building. It's relationships first. Spirituality as ethics begins with a willingness to listen to the suffering of others and to be witness to a world in need. This, to me, is the approach to ethics that's at the heart of ethical culture. And some link it to spirituality and some do not. That's fine. Both are okay. But for humanists who like the term spiritual, here is a spirituality of action that avoids hedonism, self-centeredness, and woo-woo spirituality, because it's real. It honors the scientific method, it relies on observation and reason, and works on actual problems of our neighbors and fellow passengers on spaceship Earth. It allows us to change the world from what is to what it could be. Most important to me, in conclusion, Adler offers to humanists a spirituality that is simply, quote, morality carried out to the finish. For Adler and for me, quote, the ultimate end itself is to elicit the worth in others and in so doing in oneself. How many times have you heard that? That's the heart of our spirituality. Spirituality that's worthy of our humanist tradition must not only be based in science and inspired by the imagination, it must make a difference in the world by bringing out the best in us all. And humanistic spirituality can flourish if that spirituality has the steady legs of science, the wings of imagination, and outstretched helping hands. Thank you.